Good morning and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Markets Call. Welcome to the first call of the year. And I know it's still quite late to say Happy New Year, but Happy New Year anyway, it's positive. So I don't think it's such a bad thing. Um, it's been a busy start to the year, as you can imagine. We now have 11 Bitcoin ETFs. We almost hit 50K and we've already had one hack in the space. Um, at this time, it was in a certain X account, but we will leave that one there for now. Before we get into the show, I want to pass over to David to run through his chart back which was a guide to crypto markets. Um, so, David, what was that? I think you published it yesterday, and it's been, had some great feedback so far. Yeah. Uh, so we actually teamed up with Glassnode to create this. Um, so like you said, it's the guide to crypto markets. And what we do is look at some of the most important on-chain analytics, uh, some of the important trading metrics that you have in crypto. And we thought it would be a good time to put this out, uh, timed with uh, the uh, Spot Bitcoin ETF, because we figured most eyes are on this uh, as a class at the moment. But there are a lot of questions about how to trade it. Um, where are we in the cycle? Will this momentum carry us through the first half of the year? Um, what do I need to do in order to kind of logistically kind of do this in either spot, futures, uh, options? So this is a way to kind of address those questions and just help people if they're the early part of the journey, as well as for people who are already familiar with it, but just need uh, a little bit more guidance in terms of how to trade these things. Amazing. I think timing is perfect because I say this so often to people and I'm sure it's said it on the podcast before, but crypto is similar to many other assets and takes properties of equities and credit and rates and all sorts of things, but it's not identical to anyone. So having that one chart pack where you can kind of figure out how to trade it and how to think about it, I think is incredibly helpful. So we'll put a link to that into the show notes. Now, before we get into the agenda, some quick housekeeping. If you are watching on YouTube, Please don't forget to scan the QR code to get access to that chart pack and all of David's fantastic research and notes from the trading team as well. If you are listening on podcast, that information will be in the show notes. And lastly, don't forget to like and subscribe. It's how others hear about us and helps us go up those charts. Now, without further ado, let's go on to today's agenda. It's a short one. ETFs. That's it. Um, it's, we're going to be talking about that. It's been a huge focus of the space in general over the last, I'd say, six months uh, and really a, a very, very important focus in the last three. I'm super excited to say we've got James Safer, an ETF research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, on to help us down, sorry, help us break down day one trading. It was a super eventful day. And it's fair to say, I think James and his colleague, Eric Valtunas, have been two of the most followed Twitter accounts when it comes to staying up to speed with ETF approvals and insights and just general uh, thoughtful ways of thinking about what's going on. So I know the team have a ton of questions for them. So excited to get into this call. James has been out at Bloomberg for over 10 years, nine of those covering ETFs. So he is a true expert on the topic. And we're very thankful to have him on today. Um, so with that, James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, excited to, excited to have you on. Um, I guess at first and foremost, are you now just super happy you haven't got to talk about when this Bitcoin approval may or may not be coming? Were, were they approved? I don't I don't think anyone covered that. I don't think anyone was worried about it. No, yeah, it, it was uh, obviously like a very big relief from my end because it, I, I, we were we were very confident. Obviously, we went to 90 percent odds in early October, but there was still this like hanging this thing hanging over my head, like, is, is Biden going to come in and stop this in some way? And yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm definitely relieved is the right word. That's definitely what I am right now. Yeah, I have to say, your your, your guys' calls were, were so on point. Like, and I think it was you specifically, and I know you had a little side bet with your uh, with your colleague, but 
the um yeah you went very certain very early which was which was great and i do think that um the certainty that you gave helped others in in how they were thinking about the ecosystem whether or not they were looking at assets like gbtc and discounts around that and things like that so i think there was a, a good amount of influence that you guys had um through your reporting um now i'm curious you see a ton of etfs this is just another ticker for you i'm sure but how does it compare to the BITO launch or maybe some of the other large ETF launches we've had in the past? Yeah, definitely not just another ticker to me uh, because this has been like, we, we, we talk about this, like there's this situation where it's like the media and the coverage, like everything you hear about, that's like 5% of a typical person's portfolio. And then like, there's only, only 5% of media and coverage is spent on stuff that's like 95% of your portfolio. Um, so that's one of these things that's going on, but this is something that's close to my heart because obviously this is what I've been focused on a lot lately. That said, um, it it's hard to compare to other launches because we've never had a launch like this. We've never had 11 ETFs doing the same exact thing, launching on the same day and trying to differentiate on things other than fees for the most part. But right now, everyone's near zero on their fees except for a couple, of, a couple namely namely Grayscale and GBTC. Um, but yeah, if you look at the Bitto launch, I think I think people were a little more caught caught off guard by Bitto's launch. Uh, also, it launched into an absolute mania in Bitcoin price in October of 2021. We were also early there, calling for approvals to happen. Uh, we we were saying it in August that it was going to happen, and that was like so. Everyone was saying we were insane that it wasn't going to happen then. Similar, it was like echoing the same. I felt like I was in deja vu with when we made our call on these spot Bitcoin ETFs because we were saying it was going to happen. And for the most part, initially, when we started saying it, everyone was like, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, but this was a little different because we went way earlier. Um, so those we were we got real confident in September that it was going to happen in October. Um, this time around, we got real confident in in around the October time range uh, due to a few different events. Um, so I think it it and also I think people kind of trusted us a little bit more after getting uh, some of these other calls right, namely Bitcoin futures ETFs and Ethereum futures ETFs. So we we've kind of made a name for ourselves, and I just hope whatever goes comes down the pipe uh, we can continue to be accurate in our calls i know i know it's not going to it might not last but i'm just i'm I, <laughs> I hope it does obviously yeah well you've done a, done a great job so far and uh, now you mentioned differentiation uh, between the products and obviously fees is one way of doing it like just for the uninitiated and kind of etfs like how are some of the other ways that they can differentiate or you would see them differentiate as these products scale out and mature yeah, I mean, it, part of it depends on what the SEC is going to allow them to actually do. The number one thing they were competing on, obviously, is fees. Um, but I think that's not really what's the that's not going to be the crux behind the scenes here. Um, if you're if you're a provider or an issuer and you have a lot of um, and you have a lot of like relationships with different people, if you have a relationship with like an advisor or a broker or what have you, they're likely to use your brand name. So they're going to differentiate on brand name, obviously. I think ultimately they're going to differentiate on people who are doing proof of reserves and sharing their their um, their keys. Not doing that yet. They're not saying where their they're saying where their Bitcoin is being held. Obviously, Coinbase is, is the named custodian on eight of these eleven. Um, but they're I think some people are going to basically do a proof of reserves type of situation. Some are like trying to do more marketing, like old school type marketing, but you can't really name your ticker for the most part in these marketing campaigns. So it's literally just like a marketing campaign for Bitcoin, which some people, if, if you're in the space, should should really love that. Um, and I think ultimately there will be these issuers, they need to find out like kinks of like what they're actually allowed to do and not allowed to do. 
Um, so I think at some point we'll see some of these like lending Bitcoin, which will turn some people off completely and more traditional finance people might be interested in earning yield in some of this. So um, I, th there's a whole host of different ways that we could see this um, uh, playing out in, in competition. Yeah, I have to say, I do quite like some of the Twitter commentary about it was Bitcoin's IPO uh, <laughs> yesterday. And, and kind of if you invested in 2015, you were kind of seed or series A, series A. And it was quite amusing to kind of see that that whole scope go through. Um, David, I know you've been obviously very close to this and you've actually published a note on this. So we yeah, would love to hand the mic to you. Yeah, I have so many questions for James. Uh, I guess two to start off with. Uh, I guess number one. How do you see the kind of the trade-off between the fees that they're charging versus the overhead they actually need to pay off? And do you think that's going to contribute to like who the ultimate winners in this are going to be? Yeah, I, I mean, so right now we have a bunch of these guys that are doing fee waivers. So it's actually zero cost to the end investor to invest in these things. Uh, I think seven or eight of them have, I think eight of them have fee waivers right now. Um, and their fees are extremely low. Look, <laughs> it's going to contribute to who wins, but I don't think it will be the deciding factor because what I was kind of hinting at is you have a relationship with somebody, as long as you're not like charging twice as much or three times as much, if you're within a few basis points of like what these other competitors are charging, I think you'll be okay based on your relationship. But that said, there is likely to just be one of these ETFs that is the de facto leader from a liquidity perspective and even possibly from an AUM perspective. So we think there's going to be like a, a multi-tier approach here. We think there's going to be one or two at the very top. There can really only be one liquidity king uh, that's like SPY in the equities markets. Um, it's GLD in for gold. And then you, depending on how you narrow things down, there's there's one ETF that liquidity kinds to, tends to coalesce around. So we think that's going to happen right now. It looks like that's likely to be GBTC, but they have a 1.5 percent uh, fee, which is kind of unheard of. Um, so, but that said, we think there'll be a tier up there, one or two at the very tippity top. And then there should be a good, healthy middle ground with people who have relationships and some of these providers that they just won, even if it's not really that profitable for them, it might even be a little bit of a loss leader. They're going to have this out there because they're going to use it for their own other ETFs, or they have relationship with clients that they want to make sure this offering is available to their relationships. Um, and some people like this is like, this is all they're doing. You have the, you have the Bitwise, the Hashdexes, the 21 shares, Valkyrie, like they are solely focused on this. Um, so everyone's going to try to differentiate in different ways. But I think if their relationships are strong and they um, are able to get enough AUM, they can if they can eat, get, get a, you know, a couple hundred million in AUM over the next year, they might not be like rock star earning these companies tons of money, but the, it'll be they'll be healthy products for them. Actually, just just really quick follow up on that, James. Is there an average, like based on all the ETFs you've seen, not just including, uh, you know, the spot ETFs or, or you know, just across the spectrum? Like, is there a threshold that you typically see that uh, ETF needs to maintain in order to just be, I guess, not solvent, but you know, operational? Um, like from a from an assets perspective. Yeah, from an yeah. asset perspective. Yeah, I'd say like over over fifty, it's prob they're probably doing okay. But at the as low as the fees are, it might be it's probably a little higher than that. I'd say if you're over a hundred million, so I don't also don't know I don't know what you guys are charging these issuers to to be the custodian, right? I don't know exactly. This is a unique situation because Bitcoin, it's not like we don't have the same backing of data. Like I know roughly what you're gonna be it's going to cost you to custody assets for an equity ETF. I know how all the the plumbing kind of works very well on the equity and bond side of things. Um, there's a lot more steps going on with these Bitcoin ETFs. So I would think that if they can get over uh, around 100 million, I guess they would probably be, they're going to stick around. They're, they're going to, they'll, 
if they're not exactly uh, super successful, they might be break even. Even like I said, I, I think Kathy Wood said she would be fine if this was a loss leader for her. Um, so I, I think that's the way a lot of these issuers are going to look at it. So people are like, oh, all, all of these are going to close. I think the over under, I do think some of these are going to close. That's the third tier that I didn't really talk about. There are probably going to be a couple that have to close if they can't differentiate themselves or get enough assets. Um, but that's just, that's capitalism and that's how the ETF market works. So um, we'll be waiting to see. Just a quick follow-up question on that, James. So let's say we're in January 2025, and you just talked about that that tiering, um, about how, how that's roughly going to look. Um, in terms of the market share, um, so those guys playing in the top tier, do you think there's going to be someone, at number one, who's going to capture like 50%, 60% of the market, and number two is going to be like 20 30 and um, let's say there's going to be a couple of smaller ones that are going to capture the remaining uh, 20% or so? How, how do you think of that like in, in terms of rough numbers? Yeah, I, I, so it depends if you're talking about liquidity or assets. I think assets will be a little more evenly distributed, particularly if you can compete at the top. I mean, I go back to like the way I look at equity ETFs. We have four ETFs that track the S&P 500, and you have SPY, which is losing its asset lead. It's the first ETF, but it charges 10 basis points. That said, it is nowhere near close to losing its lead as the liquidity product, right? If you talk to anyone, you talk to any traders, SPY is where you're going to trade the S&P 500. So I think right now it looks like GBTC is likely to be that, but we'll see what happens over the coming weeks, months, even years uh, to see how that how that plays out. But it's it's unique because you asked how this compares to other launches in the past. It's also like Bitto, one, it was one ticker. So like once you get liquidity, it gets more liquidity. Um, but also like you kind of have a paradox of choice here with 11 ETFs launching. And also you have GBTC coming over, which if it was an ETF, even before it launched, it would have been the top 1% by AUM, top 1% by trading volume, trades a couple hundred million dollars a day on average just average day for them. Um, so you're kind of porting already cre created liquidity and it's like, uh, it's it's almost, it's basically a PED in this competition. It's why they were able to come out and charge 1.5% um, and still likely have a very successful product. So I've got a super unfair question, which of course means I have to ask it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you already kind of put out an estimate on day one flows, um, but have you done any estimates on what you think is going to be the first month, the first year uh, for the collective of these ETFs? Yeah. So, so our guess for the first year, I, I put out a note in December was I thought 10 billion would be a very successful year. I'd probably put the over under if I had to bet on it. And then I might be inclined to take the over. Um, but I've seen some crazy numbers out there. Uh, 25 billion in year one is not that crazy. But I've, I mean, Standard Charter Bank said, I think, 50 billion to 100 billion, which is Honestly, that's not going to happen. Um, if anyone's listening to this and thinks that's going to happen, gold ETFs right now are about 100 billion. I think they're like 96 billion in the U.S. Um, I do not think. I mean, absent some ridiculous run up in in the price, which with this asset you never know. Um, that's the thing with assets. Uh, assets are they can go up via two ways, right? Price and flows. And we look at flows as the organic demand for these types of products. And right now, yeah, we have 700 million, um, but the way that fund accounting works, so 700 million was of inflows um, for day one of these ETFs. But the way fund accounting works, some of these guys were not going to get the flows until aftermarket closed today. They report their shares outstanding on a T plus one basis. So we don't actually know what happened with GBTC and likely one or two others. Um, so we, we don't have a full picture yet of what happened day one. My assessment is we might have just seen a complete wash um, I'm guessing we saw significant outflows from GBTC, and then a lot of that money just found itself back in these other ETFs. But we, I can't know that for certain yet. But that's that's my guess of of what happened. And, and how does it? I, you know, I hate to dominate the conversation, but how does it factor in when you see some of these big Wall Street firms like 
your vanguards out there or, or other ones who have said that they're not going to offer this to their clients. And then there's also, I, I think, a big contingent of wealth managers out there like banks, broke dealers who have their own due diligence processes that they need to kind of uh, do first before they can offer it to their clients. I mean, does that affect the timing or thinking around the flows and the ultimate demand for this product? Yeah. So I've been saying for months, I've been on a lot of these crypto podcasts with people who think like all of a sudden billions are going to flow in day one. And I was like, one, those platforms you were talking about, you're right. There's there's time to take due diligence. A lot of them have, they need a specific timing of track record. Some of them are years, like it might be three years before some of these massive platforms will allow anything on. They can make exceptions. And I'm sure all these issuers are trying to be one of those exceptions. Um, they have, they want AUM thresholds. And also the, the institu- institutions aren't like, and I don't blame them. They're not going to jump in day one. They're going to see how these things are operating. They're going to let people work out the kinks before they start um, putting a ton of money in these things. Um, but yeah, as you said, so there's a lot of Merrill, uh, UBS, uh, City, but it, those are platforms that tend to have a much heavier hand in what they do and do not allow. So I'm not completely surprised at all that they're not going to allow people to buy these ETFs. They probably want to do their due diligence. They might just be against Bitcoin as an asset, which is not, it's not crazy. I'm not surprised. I am surprised by Vanguard's move though. Um, not because I, everyone is saying Vanguard's going to launch a Bitcoin ETF. That, that's a question we get all the time. And I'm like, no shot. They don't have a gold ETF. It's in their ethos. They are against anything that doesn't produce cash flows. So we never expect them to launch an ETF. That said, them not letting anyone buy these ETFs is shocking to me because that's more, that's, you're, you're when you're using the Vanguard platform, it's it's very much like a hands-off type approach with their brokerage. Um, and ironically, you can buy Bitto, which is the Bitcoin futures ETF, which I would argue is a less efficient means of getting access to this asset class. And I checked what we were talking about this earlier. I checked to make sure you can still buy it on their platform, but you can't buy any of these spot Bitcoin ETFs, which seems, it just doesn't make sense to me. It, 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 so yeah, but it's We'll see. I, I, I've, like I said, we've been focused on the longer term, what's going to happen with these flows, because a lot of these bigger players, these advisors, these wirehouse platforms for brokers, it's going to take longer for them to put these things. They usually have a tiered list. So I keep talking about tiers, but we're going to talk about tiers again. There's usually a list of things that have a green light, and then there's stuff that's a yellow light that might need like you need certain sign-off or you need to go through a couple additional hoops in order to buy this for your end client. And then there's usually a list at the bottom that is do not buy, no matter what, you can't buy this. And these ETFs are likely in that red area, at least for now. Um, That said, a lot of these platforms have set up things with like Swan and Galaxy to do private assets. So some of the work has already been done um, to kind of get these advisors comfortable with the assets. So it might be possible to get onto the, the yellow and green lists uh, much quicker than some other asset classes. James, and you mentioned Bitto a couple of times. So um, again, imagining ourselves sort of a year out from now, how do you see these um, two uh, types of ETFs coexisting? Is there going to be some cannibalization? Or, and can you more generally like um, talk high level about the, 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 the setup that we would have um, and the future ETFs? So that's, that's more expensive, obviously, than the spot ETF, I guess, and, and share some thoughts on that. Yeah, so my the correlation I would look to is spot gold ETFs that launched. There was gold futures ETFs that were there um, and they no longer exist because spot is just a more efficient means of getting access. So I don't think Bitto will close anytime soon. It might never close. Um, it's a good vehicle for trading short-term exposure to Bitcoin. Um, but due to the nature of rolling futures, you have roll costs or you, it could be roll yield technically too, but it's just an inefficient way for long-term exposure because you basically, so if you're, if you're holding the January contract as a Bitcoin futures ETF, you need to get ready to start selling that in a couple, maybe in a week or two um, and start rolling into the February contract. And if that February contract costs more than the January contract, you're losing that. So you're 
selling low and buying high. You do that repeatedly. Um, and Bitto has underperformed spot. It underperformed spot by 16% in 2023. So if you went to somebody and said, this fund is going to, here, this fund will give you exposure to this asset class, but the expense ratio is 16%, which is fundamentally kind of what it is, um, you're not going to be interested in it. That said, Bitto had one of some of its big one of its biggest days ever yesterday. And that's because the market makers, these APs, these people on Wall Street, they're going to be using Bitto, which has embedded liquidity in the same way GBTC did, um, to kind of basically hedge on the other side of these trades, make shorter term bets because there's more liquid there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I expect to see significant outflows from both GBTC and Bitto um, over the coming weeks and months. Um, but initially, it might actually do the opposite to Bitto, because like I said, market makers are probably going to be using this and futures themselves um, to do to make markets and offer bid and create their bids and asks um, using using Bitto as the other side. Very cool. And I'm curious how you think about uh, other products, maybe on top of these ETFs, like whether it's options or, or things like that. Is that something that is predicated on on liquidity and, and volume generally? So, so normally options like Bitto had options within like I think it was a day trading on there. I have since learned, which I don't know, I haven't seen anyone talk about this yet. They're 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 not allowing options on these spot Bitcoin ETFs from from what I've seen. Um, I think the SEC has to actually green light it. This is they're technically it has something to do with them being commodity funds. I, I don't know the the specifics, but I've heard that um, it looks like there's probably not going to be options on these things. Um, but we'll know for certain in a few days because if they're not, if there's no options next week, then what I'm hearing is probably correct, and there won't be options, um, which is sad because one of the huge benefits of ETFs is we kind of view them as like a Swiss Army knife. People think they were built to like compete with index funds, but ETFs were created in the 90s, basically out of the back, off the back of uh, the 87 crash. Um, so they were built to be trading vehicles for institutions, um, and that's what they should be used for. Um, in some cases, the benefit of an ETF is it brings those people, those institutions, the traders in. Um, it brings in long-term buy and hold investors, retail traders. Um, so everyone kind of coalesces around the same thing. And that's what helps bring in the liquidity. It, it gives you scale. And that's why the fees can be so low in many cases. Um, but one of those things that gives it makes it a Swiss Army knife is the ability to use options on them. Uh, and it doesn't look like, from what I'm seeing, that we'll get options on these. Interesting. So one, one to watch out for. And, and I guess my my next question is around like how um, it could be used in portfolios and like model portfolios and things like that. Like where is some of the demand, additional demand going to come from? Obviously, you've, as you mentioned, in retail institutional investors just buying the ETF. But is there other potential demand from other other ETFs or portfolios and, and things like that? Yeah, so undoubtedly, we're we're probably already seeing it. I know for a fact, Ark is is going to buy their own ETF in their other ETFs to to get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, there will probably be other providers that do this. Um, mutual funds have been adding language that says they can add the Bitcoin ETF in their like prospectus documents. Um, that said, I don't know that that's going to be a massive, massive case of assets here, uh, but it will probably have somewhat of an impact. Um, but this is. That's ETFs more broadly are used like that all the time. They're often used as cash equitization sleeves. So essentially, if you have a portfolio, rather than holding cash and ending up with cash drag, um, cash drag would mean like you're in cash and the, the asset goes up really well. But if you held too much cash, your performance isn't going to keep up with the underlying market. So I think people will kind of do the ETFs are used like that by, by their own competitors, mutual funds and other other areas, specifically because their ability to be traded and so liquid. Um, so, And then you go to model portfolios, which is the first 
part you mentioned, I think BlackRock is one of the largest model portfolios out there, portfolio providers. And the way to think about this is advisors, many advisors, um, they're not technic- they're not usually, they're not necessarily the ones doing the actual investing. So that you can think of them in many cases are more like salesmen, or sometimes they're more about financial planning. So working with people and helping their financial plans get set up when uh, kids for college or whatever, what have you, retirement. Um, and they're they're just kind of picking generic model portfolios based on somebody's like risk appetite and uh, ability to take risk. Um, so they have like certain set allocations to these equity ETFs and these bond ETFs, and then maybe some other things. And I think some of the more riskier model portfolios eventually might include a two percent allocation or a five percent allocation um, to this. Uh, that said, it's probably going to take some time before we see those model portfolios, at least the ones from BlackRock, to do this. Um, but there will probably be some model portfolio allocation here because if you've seen any of the studies about what Bitcoin does to a portfolio from a risk-adjusted return basis, uh, sharp ratio, um, it does good things to both the vol of the portfolio and the performance of the portfolio. So it's a very easy jump to make that somebody would put uh, at least a sliver um, into these into these ETFs. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think there's a lot of education to be done in general, and I think it just continues um, from from yesterday. Now, you mentioned, I think, a couple of them earlier on, but wirehouses. It's an area of the ETF landscape that maybe isn't understood super well by everybody. So can you maybe just start by defining what a wirehouse is and providing some examples? Yeah. Uh, so like UBS, uh, these other, some of the platforms I talked about that aren't allowing them right now, they have the, the brokerage facing ones, but just think of it as like, um, I think of them, I, I don't, I'm not like a, an expert on exactly, um, all of, I'm not an expert on all of them, but the way the way I think about it is there's these platforms where advisors and or brokers um, work. And like, yes, there are some completely independent advisors that will be able to do whatever they want for their own clients. But in most cases, there's a back-end system where they are basically, there is a compliance department, a due diligence people that will allow you to um, basically buy those assets. So some of those people on the platform, they're like, you can go to those wirehouses and there's model portfolios set up because they have relationships with the likes of BlackRock or even some third party uh, administrators that don't actually own ETFs. They'll offer those model portfolios. But you, you could just think of it as a platform that like they, everything is built up on the back of them. Um, so a lot of the in- Dependent advisors are tend to lean on for the backend systems. Um, TD Ameritrade, well, TD Ameritrade was acquired by Swap, so TD Ameritrade and Swap and Fidelity. So the fact that Fidelity is here launching these things is it's they have a lot of vertical integration um, between that, so that they're not a wirehouse, but you can think about them as like having heavy vertical integration because they're the asset manager, they're providing backend infrastructure for advisors, and they're doing the custodial relationship there. So that will be interesting to see. That said, um, you can still buy any of these ETFs you want um, using their platform. And Schwab is is adding all of these too. Um, so for the most part, it's just you, you can think about the wirehouses being more institutional grade. They're going to be slower to take up on this. Um, but I know for a fact I've heard rumors that's well not rumors. I've I've heard substantiated info that um, a lot of these wirehouse platforms already have the ability for advisors to go into private Bitcoin funds and custodial relationships with the likes of Swan and Galaxy, as I hinted, and and OnRamp actually is another provider. Um, and so, but that would be, I talked about that green, yellow, red, that they're currently in that yellow mark to do that private trust. And there's a lot of friction to do kind of that stuff. It's if you're only going to put 2% of your assets in these things, if you're at one of these wirehouses or one of these advisor platforms that don't allow it yet, or they maybe do allow to go the private route, it'll, it's so much more efficient to be able to just click buy an ETF like you do on everything else. Right. So if they can get to that, even the yellow level with the ETF, um, it will be um, significant 
uptick um, for these these platforms to allow them to um, to buy these things. So James, I'm I'm sure uh, you're happy to kind of be done about talking about spot ETFs. So let's talk more about spot ETFs on the ETH side <laughs> uh, instead of Bitcoin. Like number one, how how much of a template do you think the spot Bitcoin ETFs are? For a potential spot ETH ETF in the future, and I think like your your calendar shows that the most nearest deadline is sometime in May, I believe. Yeah, so Vanek and Arc both filed on the same day. Um, I'm not sure what happened in the bureaucracy end, but Arc's deadline is actually a day later due to the one it was posted to the Federal Register. But that's wonky stuff that we don't need to get into. But yeah, May 23rd is is Vanek's date. Um, that's basically the equivalent of. ARC and 21 shares is January 10th date. Um, so I, my personal view right now is we're, we're somewhere over 50% odds that we see a spot ETF. Um, we think it might happen by that May 23rd date. Otherwise, I, I do think it's going to happen in 2024. Um, our odds are probably somewhere around 70% right now. That said, ETH is a different asset from Bitcoin. Um, you, you get into staking. I, I will say also, if we do see an ETF, a lot of people have tons of questions about how they're going to stake. I would be absolutely and utterly shocked that even if they do allow Ethereum ETFs, they probably will not allow any sort of staking, at least to start. Um, I mean, they won't even allow in-kind creation redemption via the Bitcoin ETFs. I, I seriously doubt they're going to allow them to stake. Um, my my view, and I wrote this, and I got, I got attacked by Bitcoin maxis for, for this take, but um, I've, I view the way that they've handled Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. There was a shift this summer, and they've kind of shifted away from Bitcoin and Ethereum and are focusing their efforts on waging war on the rest of crypto, um, including you guys, which I know you can't really talk about. Um, but I think um, they have implicitly accepted Ethereum as a commodity, even though the chair won't say it publicly. He also won't call it a security. Um, so by allowing futures, ETF, futures to list on CME and micro futures and options, each time the SEC had the ability to change the way that the CME registered those futures, they registered them as commodity futures or standard futures. The SEC has the ability to force people, force them to be, have been registered as securities futures, which be duly covered by the CFTC and the SEC. And the SEC never did that, not at any point over the last few years. And then they approved Ethereum futures ETFs. So as far as I'm concerned, they've implicitly accepted Ethereum as a commodity. That said, there's nothing stopping the SEC. We'll see how far they go. Um, if they do try to claim Ethereum as security and say why, that's why they won't allow an ETF to list. Um, they'll be waging, they'll basically be going to battle against the industry and against the CFTC on that front. So those are all reasons why I think it's going to happen. That said, all it takes is them saying it's a security and you likely have to delist those Ethereum futures ETFs and futures, which I think is unlikely, but they could make arguments something around staking or other issues. But the approval order, this is a long answer, so I'm sorry, but the approval order um, that they we got the actual written approval order from the SEC for Bitcoin ETFs basically pointed to the CME futures market being correlated and good enough for surveillance of the underlying spot market as part of the reason why they approved the Bitcoin ETFs. And I think that language is a key in why we should also get Ethereum spot Ethereum ETFs. Uh, that said, like I, I came to that, I, I wouldn't put anything past Gensler. And there was even even up until the right before the deadline, we still had a five percent chance that something would something would happen and we get it yanked and. The Bitcoin ETF got approved by a 3-2 decision, and it was only decided by Gensler's deciding vote, splitting, uh, siding with the Republicans. So we were pretty close, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them do something crazy um, going after Ethereum, but my base case is they won't. Yeah, I think that resonates a lot with the community as well. And many of us who are thinking the same, we all thought 90% to 99% chance odds that this would get approved, but 
waiting. I kind of want to just go back to that correlation argument you made earlier, because I think that's super important. And we know that from the Grayscale court case, um, you know, the SEC was being arbitrary and capricious with regards to how they were treating futures versus the spot market. But is that going to be challenged in a spot ETH ETF? Because for the CME futures market, for example, in ETH, is really only like a fifth the size of Bitcoin. Um, we're just talking about CME futures. Uh, does that present an issue for uh, regulators, you think? It might. Um, so I, that's also, like I said, we're, I, we haven't, I actually need to write a note where we officially put our odds. So I'm over 50%. And that's one of the reasons why it's another reason why we're not quite there. It could be an issue that said, we'll see what the correlation analysis shows. I mean, we saw in the court case, the SEC basically was saying that the correlation analysis from ARC and Bitwise and Fidelity and a bunch of other people showing the SEC, look, you asked for this. This is how the markets are working. There is, it is a market. It's a price discovery is happening here. Yeah yada, yada, yada. And the, and the SEC was like, nope. And like covering their eyes <laughs> at the in the court case. And then all of a sudden we saw in this uh, approval order that basically the SEC is now agreeing with them and did their own correlation analysis. Um, but <laughs> uh, Crenshaw has issued a dissenting letter and they um, Crenshaw kind of basically said she didn't, I don't even understand what she was saying in that letter, but she tried to disagree. All this is very political is the, is the other thing. Like you, we, we asked how you asked a couple times about how this correlates to other ETFs in the past. This is so over politicized and not based in fact, um, which is what that court case showed when they were deemed to be arbitrary and capricious. But uh, yes, I do think that the fact that Ethereum is so much smaller than the Bitcoin futures um, might be a problem, but I'm thinking I'm not as concerned about that as I am with, with some of the other things I spoke about. James, and another thing that has been talked uh, talked about a lot on social media uh, in terms of what's next for the crypto uh, ETF space is uh, some people throwing out wild ideas about you know XRP or, or Solana ETFs. What do you think about that in the context of potentially a new administration in the U.S. in, in a year's time? Yeah, so um, not anytime soon is the short answer, um, but I'll explain. So ironically. As much as I hate to say this, it, it, I'm not a I'm not a Ripple guy, but it, the, that court case could make it so that they theoretically could be next. Um, based the 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 template right now that I have to follow and everything I know about what the SEC is doing is you need a futures market that is uh, uh, federally regulated, so regulated by the CFTC in this case the CME, and the only assets we have. Um, trading for and have futures for are Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I think the first thing you need is one, you need a CME futures market um, right now. Uh, and then you probably need a futures ETF, but maybe not. Maybe the SEC will just accept the futures and could allow you to go straight to spot for the next asset. Um, but right now you probably won't be able to do that as far as I'm concerned. Um, or you need you need a literal act of Congress. Like people joke, like, oh, you need an act of Congress done. Like, yeah, you might actually need a little act of Congress uh, on market, on like a market structure bill to figure out um, what, how they're going to handle these other assets. And I'm watching the court cases that are, the SEC is in, involving with your coin, with you guys at Coinbase and uh, your competitor Kraken and some other things to see how this is going to shake out on whether these things are going to be considered securities or not. So I guess theoretically, I'm viewing it as Bitcoin here, Ethereum here, and then like everything else, like not even in the screen here, maybe Ripple would be a little bit above everyone else because of the court case, which might set some precedent once it's done. But even still, I don't see the SEC approving this thing for all the reasons I said, and because they are still calling Ripple a security. Um, so 
Yeah, that's the way I'm looking at it. So basically, you need a CME futures market. So if we see CME try to file for a Solana futures or uh, Ripple futures or something like that, then maybe we could start talking about it. But as far as I'm concerned, they are not even in my sight uh, of happening anytime soon. Amazing. I mean, wow, we covered a lot of ground there. Um, potential new ETFs, what market share looks like, products on top. Um, I feel like I feel like we've really, really gone through a deep dive on what we can expect and and also some of the the flows from yesterday. I guess maybe just as we kind of wrap up, as we think through some of the flows from yesterday, George, maybe if I can pass to you, like what do we see in the the crypto space in relation to all the excitement? from the, the, the kind of the Bitcoin flows that we saw as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny that you say that. I, I, you know, like looking at the price section, I think the, the feeling I had almost at, at, at certain points was that um, it, it almost felt like um, they, they just approved an ETH or ETH ecosystem ETF and not a Bitcoin spot ETF, right? If you look at um, some of the top performers uh, on a week-on-week basis, uh, ENS uh, is up 83%, uh, ETH Classic up 56%, and generally speaking, a lot of the higher beta ETH ecosystem tokens doing really, really well. Um Outside of that, obviously, a couple of other tokens um, on the L1 side, like Sui, also doing really well. That one was up 44% um, on the week. But uh, I think, um, obviously, we, we all know how quickly, notoriously quickly, attention shifts uh, within crypto. And I think, um, to some extent, uh, within the crypto native segment, we have seen that shift in Bitcoin and uh, Solana and Solana ecosystem tokens. Uh, for the time being, to ETH and ETH uh, ecosystem place. And I think you could also see that in the drift space, for instance, if you look at the options market, uh, one month, 25 Delta SKUs um, shooting up for Bitcoin. So people looking at some um, downside protection short term, uh, ETH, for instance, where uh, that move has been more moderate. Um, But just to put uh, that into context, basically, I think over the last uh, 48 hours or so, we've seen uh, ETH BTC move up uh, about 26, 27%. So that's um, it's definitely the first time this, this has happened in uh, in quite a long time. And also probably a function of, you know, ETH not getting a lot of love uh, for a number of months now and, and because of that uh, positioning. Uh, but yeah, it'll, it'll be quite interesting uh, to see what happens. I guess the other question here is, and I've seen some people um, talk about that is uh, comparing the current launch to the local top we had in the market with the uh, Bitto um, launch uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so are we going to have a, a similar situation where the market is, is going to lose some steam, at least in the short term? I think in the long term, we can probably all agree that um, this, you know, this this moment of the ETF launch is, is going to be extremely, extremely bullish for the whole space. Yeah, a, a historic and momentous occasion. Um, but James, going to leave final question with you. Um, now the Bitcoin ETF is approved, you must have a ton of spare time. So what are you going to be doing now? I actually don't because now I'm trying to cover the race and figure out where how much money is actually going in. And uh, I like you kind of hinted at we're going to be covering this and then also shifting to looking at what's going on with ETH. And then the other part of this is like, I also cover every other ETF in the asset management world. So there's I've left a lot of other stuff to the wayside over the last month that I need to uh, pick up and update and, and refresh. And I'm building some cool stuff for, for that side of things. But obviously, I'm, I'm always going to have an eye on what's going on here. But yeah, no, no, no real rest. But I am very much looking forward to this, this three-day weekend. Very, very much.
<laughs> yep, I can I can definitely believe that. I'm sure it's been a pretty crazy period over the last couple of months. But thank you so much for reporting um, in such a, such a great way. And for those that want to follow James, check him out on Twitter. Um, obviously, there's going to be updates on flows that he's looking into now and also the ETH ETF. Um, and also, there are other ETFs that aren't crypto-related for those that would do such a crazy thing as look at those. But um, anyway, James, thanks so much for joining. And thanks so much to our production team, David, George. And we will see you next week. Take care. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.